Well, that's pretty close to running around the church. That's good. Praise the Lord. And this song reminded me all three services of the disciples who were asking Jesus uh, for some in-depth teaching. Give us more. And the essence of Jesus' response was, guys, you haven't even appropriated by faith what I've already given you. So take what I've given you and learn it and live it. And then I'll give you more. It'll come. So thank you, Michael. It's a great song. And I don't know why you haven't recorded it yet and, and had it spinning on the, on the uh, radio. Hey, let's look to John chapter 2 today. I am, of course, pulled back a little bit from our Old Testament series. Uh, through the summer, it gives me an option to be able to, to go in some different directions. We'll get back into Judges uh, where, where we left off. We actually left off at the end of Joshua and now ready to go into Judges. Some great narratives in, ju- in Judges that uh, you would think by the title of the book, ooh, that sounds boring. I'm telling you, it is filled with some very, very uh, strong narratives. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. But there's a few Sundays that I've just taken some time uh, to park in some areas that I think are important for us to to know and to study. And John chapter 2 is one of those. John 2 is a passage that really helps to unlock a large part of the, the ministry of Christ and our ministry as well. So it's good for us to hang out here. I want to talk about a narrative that many of you who have been in the Bible studies for a while know the story very well. It's the story of Jesus' first miracle there in Cana. It's a, among a wedding celebration And Jesus is going to provide for the celebration, uh, which is run out of wine. Jesus is going to provide for them the wine in a miraculous way. But before we get to the story, I want to go back into chapter 1 and just lay some foundation, some background work that I think is essential for us to rightly understand the story at hand. John's account of the gospel is coming at a time when the religious system of the day of the first century is just utterly broken. Uh, there's nothing about it that's working. The, the religious leaders who, who ought to be moving people in the right way of God, they're so spiritually blinded that they don't see uh, the truth of God's Word. It's, it's a complete failure, Judaism is. And so the evidence of that is seen in chapter 1, and the illumination of it is in chapter 2. Chapter 1, beginning in, in verse uh, 11 of that chapter, the Bible says that that Jesus came to his own and the people did not know him. They did not receive him. Uh, John 1.19 says that the Jewish leadership were going out to to find about John the Baptist. If you remember, he's out in the wilderness. He's sharing about a baptism of repentance and calling for them to be baptized. And and they come out, the religious leaders do, and they begin to to look for him and want to know all about him, want to know his identity, to ask who he is. And John diverts the attention away from himself and is basically saying this, hey, you don't need to know who I am. You need to know the one in whom you don't know who's in your midst. And he's pointing out Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they were spiritually blind and did not even recognize the Son of God who was in their their very presence. They had ignored the words of the prophets that had been telling about the Messiah to come and given them means by which they could could, uh, understand that. But they were so blinded spiritually that they didn't see any of that. And the system of religion was utterly broken. Now, the story today is going to help us to see the brokenness of that and how God restores all that and gives hope through Jesus Christ. This is one of those times in the Bible that the Word has been moving towards uh, from Genesis chapter 1, actually chapter 3. 
This is the part of the Bible that John, refer, excuse me, that Paul refers back to in Galatians chapter 4 where he says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. This is the fullness of time. Or in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, where he says, The words of the, the prophets and the words of the law were until John. And since then, the kingdom of God has come and is being proclaimed. So this is one of those transition passages that helps us to see more fully what God is providing for us in Jesus Christ. Judaism is an empty system. It's a vessel that is broken. It's completely devoid of joy and hope. And it certainly is nothing to celebrate. And so the story that we have today is picturing that. It's an illustration, a living illustration of what was actually transpiring in in the lives of the religious order. In other words, you have these six water pots that are made of stone that are absolutely empty. Just like the religious system was empty, void. You have the announcement that there's no wine. And the joy and the celebration is going to be diminished because of that. Just like there's no joy in religion that's structured with rules and restrictions. So Jesus is coming on the scene and he is going to have all of that changed. He's going to, by the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God, be able to provide for us hope and joy. And the story is illustrating that. Now look, if you will, to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll just hear the story. And then I want to just point out some things about it to you. Beginning in the first Verse of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana at Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. Now, again, let me just make some, uh, some reference to the elements of the story because I think we need to understand why they're there. First of all, the element of wine, specifically that the wine is now depleted. There's none there. Now, wine throughout the Bible is a symbol of joy. In fact, you find in the 104th Psalm, you find that God has given wine for the gladment of the hearts of men, the joy of the hearts of men. So wine is mentioned to, to uh, communicate the joy that we have in God. Now there's six stone jars there that God is going to miraculously uh, transform water into wine. There's six water stone jars there. Six is an interesting number. It's the number of the days of the creation in which mankind was created, brought forth, it's the number of incompletion. It's the number of lacking. It's the number that speaks of our corruption before God. 
Throughout the Bible, six is very much different than the number seven, which is known as the number of completion and fulfillment, the number of perfection. So there are six jars to illustrate the shortcomings of man and the lack of ability of man to do anything to purify himself. And all those jars there are provided for the people for purification, but not any purification comes by them. And Jesus, of course, is going to highlight highlight that. Symbolically, it's all providentially illuminating this narrative of God and what he wants us to know about himself. First of all, that religious systems are broken. That they provide no joy. They provide no hope. That God did not send his son into the world to bring religion. He sent his son into the world to bring a lasting relationship with mankind. That we might be in relationship with him and him with us. There's no doubt that the religious system has has brought less than comfort to the people. In fact, what it's brought is rules and mechanics, such as the purification rites as they would walk into the, the building. It was a joyless offering to the people. It didn't transform hearts in any way, nor did it fill hearts. Religion proves to be empty, like the water jars and the stone-cold water jars of the day, who were said to be able to purify people, but religion can't purify anyone to be holy and acceptable to God. What a picture of the crisis of religion in the first century. It's exactly what Jesus was finding there. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son to do something about that. But man, that's a picture for the 21st century as well, isn't it? Because there are many people across the land who still have religion. Oh, they change the terminology and they change the practices of it and the rules of it. But oftentimes church is relegated to be a religion rather than to be relationships of people with their God. That we would not be an organism that is established with rules and regulations, but that you and I, by the life of Christ, would be a living organism. And in that, would bring forth life to us and joy and hope. This is what Christ has come to to bring. Not religion, but relationship that brings transformation and joy and real hope to us. Now look what he says in the beginning of this. On the third day, there was a wedding. It's a word missing in our English translation that I think should have been included. It's in some translations, but it's the the word chi in the original language, which is a conjunction most often translated and. It would go something like this, and on the third day. You know, chapter breaks and verses were put in well after the fact of the Bible being written. And I don't like where this chapter break is because the and is meant to bring the continuation of the thought. All that has been going on and illuminated in the first chapter of the lacking of religion and the the heartlessness and the lack of joy of the people is meant to bring brought forth into this story. And the story just illuminates. It makes it a living example of what is going on in the hearts of people. It's, It's an incredible thing. What's the third day? What... What days is he referring to? If it's the third day, what is it a reference back to? I think it's the reference back to the time in which John the Baptist, who's out in the wilderness baptizing there in the Jordan, has Jesus approach and he points out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on the third day following that announcement, this wedding 
has taken place. So there's a significance in tying Jesus to the Lamb of God, as being the Lamb of God, to what is about to be transforming in this celebration at the wedding. So here they are. He's right here in the midst of all the people, and he is going to illuminate for them why he has come to earth to redeem and to reconcile people. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus and his disciples and his mother are all there at the wedding. They've all been invited. I think it's because Jesus is obviously from the region. I think he knows the groom, at least. He knows the family. And I think he's been invited there because they are friends with them. In fact, the whole community would be invited. This isn't like a selective thing. They would invite everyone to the wedding celebration, and the celebration would take place for up to a week, and it was the responsibility of the groom and the groom's family to provide for the whole celebration for the week, including all the wine that was needed for all the guests. Can I just say I'm glad that we don't have that tradition these days, and most of it, since I have three sons, go on the bride's side. But that's what's going on. The significance is obviously there, that Jesus... The first miracle that he performs, we find out that he's at a wedding, right in the center of it. That's not by chance. It could have been a lot of different ways that this miracle could have been brought about. But God chose, in its perfect wisdom, for us to know and highlight the first miracle of Christ. Jesus is in the center of a wedding celebration. Can I just say that Jesus wants to be in the center of your marriage, that he is very much for marriage. He's for the institution. It's by him. It's for him and for his glory. Yesterday, Kay and I celebrated our 28th anniversary. And I was telling her as we were talking about that, you know how guys get mushy-mush on that day, and I was throwing it out there and telling her I, I would do it all over again. Wish I could be there again on that day 28 years ago. Say I do. Now, I'd make some decisions a little differently after that, but I wish I could do it all over again and spend those first 28 years together with her. I'm looking forward to the next 28 if God is willing for us to be alive during that time. But we were talking about marriage and, and about how God has blessed our marriage. But marriage is more than blessing. Marriage is more than two people deeply in love and connected and engaged in life together and being best of friends and being in ministry together. It's way more than just what we make it out to be. At the height of marriage, with Christ in the center of it, is the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's love through His Son to you and me, the church, and our love to God Through Christ as the groom. That Jesus says, you church are the bride and he is the groom. And my relationship with Kay and her with me and this covenant that we've made with God and each other is meant that Christ would be in the center of that so that people would say, wow, what love. And it would be so presented that people could say, that's how God loves the church. And that's how the church should love God. That's what it's for. But now as we think about marriages today, our hearts are a little bit broken for marriage. Let's just be transparent. In our faith family, marriages are under attack. 
that Christ is not in the center of those marriages. And I don't know exactly how it all happens, but for some of our people, it's debt that's in the center. Now, we've learned a lesson a long time ago that debt is not God's plan for our life, and we've tried desperately to live without it, and we tried to teach that to our boys. But there has been time in our life that financial pressure has been in our life, and when that happens, it is heavy, isn't it? Almost every marriage that's in crisis that comes to my attention, that is part of the issue. And I don't want it to be, but it becomes the center of the marriage. It's what they are concerned about. It's what they talk about. It's the reason why the phone rings. It's everything about their life. It's in the center. And that, my friends, is a downward spiral. Or whatever it is the condition is, if it becomes the center rather than Christ, it is a downward spiral. For some people, it's the dreams, it's the hopes, it's the children, it's all this have, go, do, be. It's all of that that becomes the center. But here's the issue. Christ wants you and me to know He should be in the center and then debt gets challenged by Him in the center. And relationships gets challenged by Him in the center. And our goals get challenged by Him in the center. And all of that comes in alignment when Christ is the center. So if you're there in that very difficult place where something else is in the center of your marriage, repent. Change the way you think about that. Confess what sins need to be confessed and ask the Spirit of God to help you to illuminate Christ and elevate him to the center, and let everything else come off of that. He's in the center of this for a reason, and it's not just by chance. He wants us to recognize that he should have that place. But now while he's there, there are some words spoken that I think are essential for us to understand. First of all, the fact is the wine has run out. That's a big, big problem for the groom and his family. Uh, they were responsible, as you know. So the mother of Jesus, Mary, takes it upon herself to try to fix the problem. And she goes to Jesus and basically is insinuating for him to miraculously take care of the situation. Now, in calling to, for Jesus to deal with this situation, the mother has actually overstepped her bounds. First of all, to even present the issue to him as if he didn't know is an overstepping of bounds. I can tell you with all certainty the Son of God is omniscient. He knows everything. Why, the Bible says that his very hands are the ones that formed the vine and the branch and the grapes that were even smashed to get the wine in the beginning. I can tell you the sovereignty of God knows if he's at a wedding celebration and there's no wine. He didn't need his mother to tell him that. And certainly the parental authority that she once exercised over him is not to be exercised now. Now her insinuation is, you do something about it. But I can tell you with all certainty, Jesus is Lord over all, and he is not subject to anyone, including the woman who birthed him. And so he says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we're a little taken aback by what seems to be the tone that Jesus is giving in this gentle rebuke. But I think what in essence what he's saying is, woman, my father determines the miracles that I perform and when I perform them. 
not you or anyone else. What does this that you bring to me have to do with me? If my father wants the miracle, he'll provide it and he'll instruct me. Now, this is a calculated statement, as I said. I don't think we ought to be bothered by the fact that he calls her woman. Every now and then, just in a joking way, I'll call out to Kay, woman! (laughs) And she most of the time responds to that, but she knows that that's a joke. In the first century, it's not, there's nothing to that. In fact, Bible scholars tell us that that could even be a term of affection for someone. It was for Jesus in the end of his life. He's there on the cross of Calvary, and there his mother is grieving and weeping over all that she has seen take place. And Jesus calls out from the cross in one of his seven statements. Remember this? Woman, behold thy son. That's about his most loving expression as you can get. Hey, there's John right beside you. John, treat her as your mom. And Mary, he's going to be like a son looking after you. So it's not that he's bringing a condescending tone to it. He's not belittling her by calling her woman. In fact, what he's doing is very intentional. So why is he calling her woman rather than mother? I think, first of all, he wants her to understand that all that he's born of woman, as was mentioned back in Genesis 3, he is the son of God. And he wants to highlight that rather than her being the mother. And secondly, I think that Jesus knows that over the centuries that will follow, people will have a real tendency to create an idol out of her. And so he doesn't give her a name or a title by which he uses that could be used by the enemy to create this Mariology, this idolatry of the Virgin Mary. Instead, he simply calls her a woman so that she is not elevated to a point beyond what she should, as if she would have special favor with God if we just prayed to her, she would speak to God on our behalf. Jesus is alerted to this notion of the heart of people to grab hold of idols, and even the birth mother would be that kind of one. So he refers to her not as mother, but as woman, because he wants to help frame that in our mind rightly. Now, as Arthur Pink would say, Mary is only a woman, blessed among women, no doubt, but not blessed above women. And that's an interesting thing for us to to know and share with others. But now listen what he says. My hour has not yet come. Now there's seven times in the book of John that the hour is mentioned. And every one of them is pointing and moving him to the cross. The first of which is this, where he says, Woman, my hour has not yet come. And then you can see, as I've given it to you on your handout, in John chapter 7, when they were seeking to arrest Jesus and lay hands on him, they couldn't do it because his hour had not yet come. And then one chapter over, he was teaching in the temple. They were trying again to arrest him, but couldn't do it. Why? Because his hour had not come. But then his life progresses in chapter 12. Jesus answers them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, he is moving to the cross of Calvary. 
In chapter 16, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you, the disciples, will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, the Father is with me. And then finally, the seventh time in John 17, Jesus has spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So all of those seven occurrences, or at least the last six, are pointing to the cross of Calvary. It's either about his arrest or about his crucifixion leading up, uh, the arrest leading up to the crucifixion, but it's all about Calvary. Why would Jesus bring it up while he's at a wedding? And what does it have to do with him providing wine for the celebration? What is going on here? Why, what's the connection where he says the hour has yet to come. Well, the hour to come would be the moment that Jesus would be turned over to the hands of sinful, murderous people. But that hour is not now. The hour in chapter 2 was the time that Jesus was very much in his Father's hands. His Father was the one dictating everything to be done by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said, I don't do anything that I'm not instructed to do by my Father, and I don't say anything that I've not heard my Father say. He was certainly in the Father's hands. The hour to be in the hands of sinners who would take him to the cross was not yet. But why bring this up here? Why? Mary is going to understand the significance. We don't get the full expression of that in, in John's very succinct narrative here. But she is going to just turn to the servants and say to them, whatever he tells you to do, do it. In other words, the sovereignty is his. The decision is his, led by his Father in heaven. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, here's some lessons for us to learn that I think will answer some of the questions that you may have going on. Mary needed to fully understand her role and place in the sovereignty of God. And she certainly, like us, needed to submit to the will of God. In fact, I think that's one of the lessons for us. That you and me need to learn to submit to God and not dictate things to God. If I could put a rewind on my prayers over the last several months or even years, and hear back all the times that I'm dictating to God what I want Him to do, when I want Him to do it, and to whom I want it to be done, then it would probably sound a whole lot like Mary. And what I need to do is to fully understand my role and my place under the sovereign rule of God. That I need to learn totally submission, total submission to the will of God and the way of Jesus Christ to live confidently in the love and the grace of God and know that He will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory. And as a child of Him, to understand, to know that I had the privilege to ask, and often have not because I ask not, to ask of Him but always default to His will. The prayer would go something different. Lord, this is the way I see it. This is what I'm seeing unfolding. And God, you know, I, I really desire for this to take place, but God, you see vastly. You see in a timelessness. You see with all wisdom and understanding, and I don't. So although I believe this to be what my need is, I default to you. Your love for me is great, and your grace to me has been proven. God, I default to you. 
I ask for this, but if you know something better, then your will be done, not mine. And that kind of prayer is not being dictatorial to Christ, but instead responding to him in the way he should be responded. Now, what about the miracle performed? Jesus ends up performing the miracle by the instruction of the Father, no doubt. But he does it for a reason different than Mary would call for him to perform the miracle. It wasn't so the wine could flow and the party could continue and this great faux pas of the day would be done away with. But instead, it's really a, an illumination of this living parable, of turning, this turning point in the life of Christ for others. Uh, the course of his life would change drastically following this miracle. When the miracle would occur, he would no longer be able to live quietly in the region of Nazareth. Everything would be absolutely different. He would be thrown into the public. He would be targeted from here on out. Following the miracle, Jesus would have often had time to be away and reprieve and rest and to eat. But now that would not be the case. He wouldn't be able to just eat when he wanted to eat or rest when he wanted to rest. Where he would normally be spending time, quiet time in solitude with the Father. Now he has to wait for everybody else to go to sleep. And while everybody else is asleep, Jesus is going out and spending time with the Father in prayer. The crowds are constantly pressing against him, constantly in pursuit of him, relentlessly. The religious leaders are wanting to jealously arrest him and put away with him because they don't want him taking his place. They want him destroyed. All of this must have flashed before Jesus' eyes, knowing the miracle that is about to transpire. Just by providing wine for a celebration. Jesus didn't back away though. He didn't back away in one single moment from what this movement was moving to. He knew that this was going to be moving him to the cross. And, and providing wine for the celebration was way more than just providing for the celebration. It was a way of introducing what would be accomplished on the cross. And that is joy and hope and real celebration. So he's drawing our attention to that. But what about the lessons for your life and my life? Interesting enough that Jesus carries out the miracle, but the servants do all the work. Did you notice that? Sure, God is going to do the miracle, but the servants are the one that fill the pot. And the servants are the one that skim off the pot, and the servants are the one to take it to the master of the, the feast itself. Yes, God does the work, but the servants... God does a miracle, but the servants are doing the work. Everything that was witnessed was witnessed by the role of the servants. Nobody knew anything about what Jesus had done and what he had commanded. He didn't magically wave his hands over the pot and they were transformed in wine. He didn't bring out any incantation. He didn't speak anything. All he did was instruct the servants. And as the servants obeyed him, he miraculously worked through that obedience and provided the joy for the people. Now, that's a big lesson for us. Because the enemy will try to make us think that it's about us, what we can do for the kingdom. What can I do? What ability do I have? What means do I have? Listen, Jesus didn't go out looking for the master of the feast. He didn't go out rooting around for the groom or his family. He didn't go out looking for the disciples who were called. You know what he did? He simply gave command to the servants. And when the servants agreed and obeyed, God miraculously worked through them to bring about his grace and his will as it was given. 
the means were humans, but the work was divine, and it's done through people who are obedient. Not every miracle is carried out in this way, but it reveals that God is pleased to divinely do his work through obedient servants, and he will use any of us, no matter the education, no matter the race, no matter the skill, no matter the ability, no matter northern or southern, it doesn't matter. He'll use anyone who is obedient to him, and he will miraculously work through us. Now, notice the progression here and then the result. God divinely turns water to wine through the obedience of the servants. God uses the servants to bring about joy to the celebration of the people. And the Lord used the servants to bring the wedding celebration so that he could employ us to bring joy to others. Catch that now. God wants to do the miracle. He chooses to do the miracle through the obedient servants. And he does so to bring joy. Now bring that 21st century and God can use any of us, even servants, who will just be obedient to him. And he will use us in a glorious way. Not too long ago, probably three years or so ago, we had a couple that moved down here from Chicago. I guess if you've ever lived in Chicago, you're looking for anywhere to get out of that windy, cold city. And they chose the beautiful city of Southside to make their residence for the rest of their days in retirement. We had sent out a mailer, which we do often, and it had a pretty picture on the front of it. It was a, a scene of some, I don't even remember what it was back then. But anyway, she held, kept that, and she put it up in her office in her house because she liked the scene. Well, little did she know the Spirit would call her attention to that regularly to the point that she and her husband decided, let's go to that church. I want to try it. And if they teach the Word of God, maybe that'll be the place that God wants us to serve. They came, and they heard the Word of God taught, and they stayed. Right now, they're in Entebbe, Uganda. I was FaceTiming with them and their life group, which is right next door, senior adult class that we have there. I gave them my phone as I was FaceTiming them and left it there in the, in the classroom so they could talk back and forth. Now, what they're doing in Entebbe, Uganda, is they are teaching pastors the survey of the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament and how it fits together and how it brings about the gospel. Now, my guess is they have been really in quandary. They don't have Bible training. They're not seminary trained. They don't really have any real skill and ability that people would say, oh, you ought to be teaching pastors. In fact, they probably had every reason in the world why to discount themselves from even going over there, including the means by which to do it. But they didn't discount the power of God who would take anybody who is obedient as a servant and work miraculously through them to bring about His divine grace to bring joy and hope to people. <laughs> so there they are right now in Entebbe, Uganda, teaching young pastors who are going to go back to their multiple churches that they pastor and put those truths into the lives of people. I'm telling you, the Cheneys are speaking to thousands, even though the only ones before them are 20. That's impact. You say, well, preacher, it's not me. Oh, you got your focus on the wrong person. Your focus needs to be on Jesus. 
It's not about you. It's about him. We don't even know the servants' names. My guess is nobody at the party knew the servants' names. But Jesus did. Now listen to this. He says, fill the water pots. And they're so inclined to be obedient, they don't just fill them, they fill them to the brim. And when he says, take off some of the water and go take it to the master, they don't question. They don't rebut. They do what they're told. And because of that, God works his glorious miracle through them. My guess is for the rest of their days, they were known as the ones that Jesus did the first miracle through. Now listen, people may not know your name. And you may not have much skill and ability. You might not have the education. You might not have all the means that other people have. But if you've got an obedient servant heart, God will and wants to use you in a magnanimous way that only He can, that all the glory goes to Him. Who's willing? Who's willing? That willingness transforms a dry workplace. And that willingness transforms a joyless school. And that kind of servanthood will transform a family and a neighborhood and a community or Uganda. It's just the willingness to be obedient as servants of Christ. That's what he's looking for. Now look what the progression is. God divinely turns the water to wine. He uses the servants to do it. He uses servants to bring joy and celebration to the people. And then the Lord uses the hearts of the servants to, to bring about this grand Dios idea that we're talking about 21 centuries later. Now what's the element, the component that God uses for the wine? It's water. Water is the component that he uses. Now, throughout the scripture, water is representing most often the word of God. In fact, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he says to the husbands, you need to wash your wives with the word of God so they might be presented to God clean. The water and the word go hand in hand. And here's what I want you to hear, that if you're going to bring joy to a joyless situation, if you're going to bring hope to a hopeless people, if you're going to make impact, you're going to make it through the Word, the living water of Christ. Tomorrow, I encourage you to do this. Go to somebody you work with or somebody you're in relationship with, and you say to them, hey, what would you do this weekend? And they'll tell you the things that they did this weekend, and that's all great. Because we're Southerners, we want to return the hospitality. They're going to say it back to you. What would you do? Oh, and you can tell them some things that you've done this weekend, but you make sure it ends with this. Let me tell you, yesterday morning, I was in church at Meadowbrook, and God brought to my attention how he can use anybody to bring about his glorious plan, his divine plan. And that if I would just be responsive to him, that I could help bring joy and hope to anybody. And then you ask them a question. Do you have need for hope or joy? And if you get an inclination from them that they lack joy or hope, take them to this story. 
Take them to the story that Jesus is the answer. He's the one that will fill life with joy. He's the one that can restore celebration in the true essence of the word. Take them here. I encourage you to go to those places that are dry and let the celebration begin by the living water. Now, when the master of the feast was given this wine, he was in a quandary. And if I could take it to a modern-day vernacular, it would go something like this. Now, to the groom, he says, okay, I'm not getting something here. Everybody I know I've ever done parties for always serves the good stuff first, and then when people get a little bit smashed, then they serve the, the poor stuff, the junk stuff, but you're not that way. What is going on here? You've served the worst stuff first, and now, now you're going to serve the good stuff? I want you to catch this. Right now, the world is offering the very best that it can offer. But in the end, it's going to offer its worst. Right now, some of you have bought into that. You bought into the highs of this world. You bought into the lucrative places. You bought into the materialism. You bought into the entertainment. And you bought into the relationships and all that. You bought into it. And you think, man, Randy, this is, this is the good life. I can tell you it pales in comparison to the life with Christ. And it will do nothing but get worse. Because in the end, sin pays a wage. And the wage is death. It's coming. God is the opposite. It's the very opposite. You've got to catch this. The way God does it is he takes his people, his beloved people, and he moves them through the wilderness before he gives them the good stuff, the promised land. To his people he says, oh, weeping is in the night, but joy comes in the morning. To his own son, he says, sorrow and pain and suffering will be yours. But three days later, you'll raise from the dead. You see, way God does this is he takes us in this world, and it's not as good as it gets. The best is yet to come. He says, humble yourself today, Randy of Meadowbrook, because tomorrow I'll exalt you. So when you're going through this life, and it's difficult because it is, And when the disease hits, or when the job plays out, or the paycheck is no more, or the relationships are fractured, or whatever it is that's going on, and you begin to think, oh God, where are you? Do you not love me? Do you not care about me? Do you not know where I am? No, come back to this. This life is not as good as it gets. This life is about as bad as it gets, and everything that God has for us is coming in the future. God is giving us rewards today, but I can tell you they're earning dividends and interest in the future that will accumulate to massive amounts so that they will never be depleted through all the ages of eternity. His goods come later. But you've got to be willing to live that. If you're living for today, it's as good as today's going to be. But if you're living for Christ, the future is always better. Let me ask you, just in closing, some of you are merrily rocking along in this world and you're living the fullness of life that this world has to offer you. But you need to know that the offering is as good as it gets right now. 
that the wages that are going to be paid unto you is death. Listen to me, please. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. All that chasing of happiness and all that chasing of dreams will lead you nowhere. Let God fill you with joy and let the almighty dream of the sovereign God become yours. It will pay for all eternity well. Some of you are at this place in your life that you're coming to the conclusion that your life is without wine. It's without joy. It's without hope. And you're beginning to think, is this all there is? I can tell you it's not. That Christ has come today and he wants to fill you. He wants to fill you with himself. He wants to take away all of that sin and put in all of his righteousness. He wants to be in relationship with you and flood you with joy and hope. Listen, come to Jesus. Some of you are hearing the Spirit of God speak to you in this message. And he's saying, be obedient, be a servant. And the enemy is whispering, but you don't have the skill, you don't have the means, you don't have the ways. Let Jesus handle that. You just be obedient. Let him work divinely through you to bring about his glorious grace. Some of you have been working in the kingdom of Christ for a long time. Let me encourage you, don't grow weary in doing well. For in due time, God will reward you handsomely. His amazing rewards just keep multiplying over and over and over. And they are banked as treasure. For eternity. Keep on keeping on. You say, oh, preacher, it's hard these days. I know. Joy will come in the morning. It'll come. And God will lavish on you everything that you think may be lacking today. But he'll do it exponentially for his glory. Stay focused on Jesus. And that, my friends, God will do amazing things that the world will talk about for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so challenged by your word today. Just so challenged that you would use people like us, just mere servants, limited skill and ability as it may be, but faithful to you. God, please find us that. Find us faithful to just say yes at every command. And then, oh God, would you gloriously, miraculously, divinely work through that obedience to call attention to your name and bring joy and hope to people. Thank you for the living word. I pray, God, as it's alive in us, that it would bring life to others. So we speak it and choose to. We thank you for the richness of it today. Thank you for your spirit who is our teacher. Now, as we respond to you, we do so for your honor and for your glory. May it call attention to our great King and Savior, Jesus, who provides the way for us and who is the way. In his name, amen. Sharing in the very first service, Karen Adams was seated right there in the front row. Karen and I have been in dialogue for a while now.
about what we both believe to be the call of God in her life. She's already on mission here in Etowah County, but we believe that God is calling her out of Etowah County, out of the state of Alabama, out of North America, and onto another continent. Who is she? (laughs) What skill and ability does she have? Her greatest skill and ability is to be a lover of God. And in that, she's found faithful. And God will use her. In that calling, God will use her. And he'll use you. The question is, are you going to be a servant? Let him do his thing. You do your thing. Find us faithful to you, Lord, and leave the results to you. Let the name of Jesus Christ be known, not ours. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven through us. That's our prayer. Staff are going to be standing down front to receive any of you who are coming to Christ by faith today. It might be another decision that you're making unto baptism, unto church life here at Meadowbrook. Maybe even a call to be on mission here, somewhere else. Respond. Be obedient to Him. Maybe that you just need to pull away and quietly pray, God, as your servant, I'm here. The answer is yes. Before I even know what you're going to ask, the answer is yes. I'm yours. Stand with me, if you will. It's a great song for us to sing at this time. I surrender all. Let's sing. You move as God is calling you to move. Oh, to Jesus.